Good morning. It's good to be here this morning. Um, the message that I had planned and decided I was going to give by the time I started putting it together, what God wanted you to hear this morning wasn't at all what I'd planned. And about two days ago, I rewrote the entire thing. So it's been an interesting week for me, but it's been an extremely refreshing and, and joyful week for me as well from that standpoint. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and freely hear your word, to study together, to be able to have the kind of fellowship that only an understanding of your true love really enables us to have. And Father, we pray this morning that as we hear the words that comes directly from you, that you will open our hearts, open our minds, so that they will penetrate deep and there will be something that truly makes changes within us, changes that draw us closer to each other and closer to you. All this we ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get to studying and we get to doing different things, uh, a lot of times we can get so involved in different aspects of this or dis different aspects of that. Same is true of the Bible. We can, we can begin to study just uh, certain things, and there's a, just an infinite amount of wisdom and understanding that can come from the Bible. But I think sometimes it's good for us to just go back and look at the real basics so that we, we're sure that we're right on the foundation and we're building on exactly what we should be building on. I'm going to give you all of my scripture references this morning um, so you can have them, but we won't have time to turn to all of them. Um, I, I, some of them are, we are going back and forth, so I just didn't want to waste time with that, but I will mention them so you can write them down if you'd like to. In a few moments, we're going to start right in Genesis. So we're going to be starting in Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 16, so you can go ahead and turn there now. In Genesis, we read that God created the entire universe. Within the universe, he created a very special planet called Earth. It was designed as a special paradise, an incredible paradise, and it was to be the perfect home for all mankind. God also created the Garden of Eden here on Earth. It was a truly amazing place, filled with every kind of beautiful tree that was good for you to eat. He also placed two very special trees in the garden that are specifically named, the Tree of Life and the Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil. And then, here in this garden paradise, God placed the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. We're told that mankind was created in the very image and likeness of God. And right after God created them, it says God blessed Adam and Eve. Now the Hebrew word that's, that's translated blessed in English, um, it carries the, uh, the meaning, the, the idea of, of coming to greet someone with friendliness. It refers to making someone know that they're honored, that they're important, that they're special, and that the one doing the blessing desires to have a friendship with the person being blessed. So God the creator of the entire universe blessed Adam and Eve, which means he personally and lovingly greeted them as friends. That just boggles my mind when I think about that. In addition to all this, God gave Adam and Eve a purpose, a reason for being here, a reason for their existence. He told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have charge over the earth. He gave them our entire planet as a home. It was a place of absolute perfection and beauty where they would be able to live and multiply. It was a home that was vibrant and alive, a place of perfect peace and harmony that Adam and Eve could love and nourish and care for. Finally, God told Adam and Eve to eat from all the trees of the garden with one exception. Looking at Genesis 2, Genesis 2, verse, verse 16 and 17, we read, 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Go ahead and keep your, your Bibles open to Genesis. We're going to be going on in chapter 3 in just a moment. Eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would result in death. And according to what we just read, that death would occur that very same day. God gave this command to Adam and Eve as a warning of serious and imminent danger that was in their midst. It wasn't intended to be a command for them to strive to live up to in order to be accepted by God. Their relationship with him was already rooted and grounded in knowing God personally and being bound with him with cords of absolute truth and trust and perfect love. Obeying the command could not do anything to in any way enhance their relationship with God. But as we shall see, disobeying the command would result in that relationship being completely and utterly destroyed. In chapter 3 of Genesis, Satan appeared in the garden, disguised as a serpent, and set about to deceive Eve. He convinced her that she should eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God, which God had warned them against. She ate the forbidden fruit, and she gave some to Adam to eat as well, which he immediately did. Now, jumping ahead to chapter 4 for just a minute, in the very first verse, we, we run into a problem. God had declared that on the day they ate the forbidden fruit, they would die, and Adam and Eve both ate the fruit. But in the first verse of chapter 4, we find that Adam and Eve had come together, Eve had conceived, and they had, she had borne a son. So they clearly didn't die on the day they ate the forbidden fruit. So that brings up a question. Did God, God lie about what, what he commanded them to do? Absolutely not. To understand what really happened, we need to take a look back at these two special trees that I mentioned earlier that God placed in the garden. We also need to understand that throughout the Bible, God reveals spiritual truths about himself and about our relationship with him through physical things in the physical world. And that's what we have with the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Bible tells us there's, there's just one thing of ultimate importance to God, relationships. And not just any kind of relationships, but relationships defined solely by selfless, unconditional love. Remember when God created Adam and Eve, he blessed them. He expressed his desire to have them as his personal friends. God even appeared in the garden in a form that Adam and Eve could relate to physically. He walked with them in the garden in the cool of the day. Oh, how he loved them. He gave them a gift of living in, a physical, in physical bodies in a place of unimaginable beauty and wonder. His desire was to have a never-ending personal relationship with each one of them. This relationship would be life for them. It was to be something far, far more wonderful than even a physical existence that's sensually pleasing in every way. We learn to love someone by getting to know him or her. And as time passes and we get to know the person we love more and more, the love between us deepens and grows. It's exactly the same with God. That's why we find passages throughout the Bible affirming this truth. For instance, the disciple John wrote in John 17:3, this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God. Later on, John wrote about God when he came to earth as a man, Jesus. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 2, we read, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life 
which was manifested to us, made visible to us. Going on in chapter 5, verse 20 of 1 John, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Why? In order that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Until the time Satan appeared on the scene, Adam and Eve knew absolutely nothing about disobedience. They knew the command God had given them, but they had no comprehension of what disobedience really was. They knew only one thing, a personal, loving, trusting relationship with their creator. Spending time with God on a daily basis only served to deepen that relationship that they had with him. Because Adam and Eve were made in the image and likeness of God, his love not only flowed to them, but it also flowed through them to each other, making their relationship with each other a perfect mirror image of God himself. This is why we were created, to be perfect reflections of God by letting his love flow through us to others and also back to him. To love unconditionally is to be a reflection of God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In verse 16 of the same chapter, And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And the result of this relationship with God is unmeasurable joy. Peter wrote this about this in 1 Peter 1.8, where he says, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. To know God is to love God. And he tells us this is life. For Adam and Eve, there was no right or wrong. There was only life and a single warning of a danger that could destroy that life a danger that could destroy their perfect, loving relationship with their creator. Instead of right or wrong, Adam and Eve, for them, there is only a constant growing love for God and for each other as their knowledge of God and their knowledge of each other grew, grew and flourished. Adam and Eve were living in perfect peace and perfect joy and absolute freedom. This is what the tree of life represents, a perfect, flourishing re relationship of unconditional love with God and with each other. And of the fruit of this tree, Adam and Eve were told to eat freely. But there was also the other special tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We read of how Adam and Eve learned about, of disobedience in the third chapter of Genesis. If you turn over to that now, Genesis 3, chapter, verse 1. We read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the ser serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. 
and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Satan outright declared God to be a liar. And amazingly, Adam and Eve chose to believe Satan rather than God. Instead of believing their creator, who knew what was best for them, and who desired to fill their lives with unspeakable joys, instead, they chose to believe a lie. A lie that caused them to think that they could know for themselves what was really best for them. The very moment Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, they separated themselves from God, which ended the loving relationship they had with him. Now they believed something about God that just wasn't true. What they now thought they knew about their creator wasn't who he really is at all. They no longer knew God. Because they no longer knew him, they no longer trusted him. Their perfect loving relationship with God was over. Their life had come to an end, and they were now spiritually dead. Without complete knowledge of how everything in creation interacts and works with everything else, the only means Adam and Eve had of determining what was good and bad for them was to trust their feelings and their logic and their imaginations. Anything that gave pleasure or relieved pain would be considered good, and anything that took away pleasure or caused pain or emotional distress would be considered evil. Their bodies were still alive because physical death wasn't what God had warned them about. He had warned them about spiritual death, and Adam and Eve died spiritually the very moment they acted contrary to what God had lovingly directed them to avoid. From, the moment, from that moment on, they would live by making decisions using only their logic and their imaginations to evaluate what they would see, smell, taste, hear, and feel. Without a personal relationship with God, they had no other reliable source of guidance or knowledge, and they had no one to provide for their physical needs. No longer would they joyfully rely on the infinite wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul tells us in Romans that this kind of existence can only be understood as spiritual death. Romans 8.6 says, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit, is God, is life and peace. Not only did Adam and Eve reject God, they began reflecting a distorted image of God. Their love for each other became corrupt and imperfect because God's love no longer flowed through them. Even the creation around them was beginning to become corrupted. They couldn't begin to foresee all of the destructive consequences of their actions, however noble and good they desired or thought them to be. Because of their disobedience, the perfect harmony and balance of creation was now beginning to be destroyed. Adam and Eve had chosen spiritual death for themselves, and this death has been passed on from Adam through every generation to every person who has ever lived. Romans 5.12 says, Through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. Because Adam no longer believed God to be who he really is, Adam was therefore incapable of passing on the true knowledge of God to any of his offspring. Without a true knowledge of God, it's impossible for anyone to have the kind of relationship that God had with Adam and Eve when, he, when they were in the garden. Adam was spiritually dead and incapable of passing on spiritual life to any of his children. Likewise, not a single person in all of history has ever been able to pass on spiritual life to any of their offspring either. Because we too are spiritually dead, 
We also think and act in ways that destroy the balance and harmony of creation. This means even more corruption, more devastation, oftentimes in ways we never even realize. We are also incapable of loving each other the way we should, and as a result, we too reflect a distorted image of our creator, the infinite and eternal God of love. Please turn over to Romans 1, chapter 1, verse 18. Romans 1, 18. God is merciful beyond our ability to comprehend because he doesn't immediately remove us from his creation the very first time we act in rebellion against him. But he's also told us that one day, the time of his mercy will come to an end and there will be a day of judgment. At that time, those who do not have a personal loving relationship with God, who have not been saved by him from spiritual death, they will face an eternity of never-ending torment without the hope of ever finding any relief. And no one who comes before God in the final judgment will have any excuse. Romans 1, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness righteousness of men who suppress the truth. It's not that they didn't have the truth. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. We have all exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And we now face the condemnation of eternal separation from him. An eternal existence without God means an eternity of separation from anything good and can only be described as absolute, never-ending, burning torment. Right now, God is patiently and mercifully waiting, giving everyone opportunity after opportunity to turn to him and accept the freedom he offers from their slavery to sin and from an eternity of complete and total separation from him forever and ever and ever. We're all kind of like an alcoholic who refuses to look at the devastation and destruction he's caused. His only desire is to get just one more drink so that his senses will be numbed and he will be able to ignore the pain and suffering that he and those around him are experiencing as a result of his rejection of God's love. It's easy for us to look down on a drunk sleeping on the sidewalk, but we need to remember, each and every one of us, that every single sin in each of our lives is just as destructive in terms of our relationship with God. And every single one of our sins destroys our reflection of God's image and likeness. When we sin, spiritually, we're no different than a drunk lying in the gutter. This is really bad news. Each and every one of us is doomed and there's absolutely nothing we can do to rectify the situation. We all stand guilty of rebellion against God because of things we have done, things that have resulted in corruption and disharmony and devastation and destruction in our own lives and the lives of others. We have sold ourselves into slavery to our selfish desires, and we have nothing of any value that we can use to buy our freedom from this enslavement. But we need to stop and remember, God is love. Now, because of his perfect love, He's also perfectly just. And also because of his perfect love, 
he is also perfect in mercy. But that brings up a question, how can God be perfectly just and perfectly merciful at the same time? According to his perfect mercy, we can easily imagine that in the final judgment, God could just let everyone off the hook and say, there's no condemnation. But for him to do that would be a complete contradiction of his perfect justice, and it would be a contradiction of his perfect love. On the other hand, if God condemns everyone to eternal separation from himself because judicially we deserve it, then that would be a contradiction to his perfect mercy. But here's the good news. God in his perfect wisdom had designed a plan before the foundation of the world, a plan that would enable, would enable him to be perfectly just and at the same time be perfectly merciful in the final judgment. God himself would come to earth in the form of a man, which he did as the man we know as Jesus. He came with just one purpose, to set the enslaved prisoners free so they would be able to receive mercy in the final judgment. Even the names he was given, uh, by which he was known as a man, proclaim this wonderful truth. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, we read, And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which translated means God with us. No man can pay his own debt or buy his freedom from the slavery that he sold himself into. And therefore, no man can possibly pay the debt or buy the freedom of another man either. That would require a man who has no debt himself, a man who lived a life without any sin, a man whose personal worth is so great that he could cover the debt of every man who has ever lived. And that's exactly who Jesus is. But the incalculable worth of Jesus isn't found in silver or gold or in anything else he owned. His worth is found in who he is. He is God, the creator of the entire universe, who came to earth as a man. His worth is, his worth is more than everything in his entire creation all put together. Jesus did live a sinless life, and that caused him to be hated by the religious leaders of the day. He was eventually tried and unjustly sentenced to death on the cross where he died as the perfect sacrifice offered in place of sinful men to fulfill the judicial requirement of condemnation for all of us in the final judgment. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Galatians 2, verse 13 and 14. And when you were dead in your transgressions, he made you alive with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, having nailed it to the cross. Jesus himself, while he was on earth, declared in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And he also said in John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Truth is found only in a personal relationship with God, a loving, trusting relationship based solely on who he is and not on what we imagine him to be or what we want him to be or what we want him to do for us. 
This takes us now back all the way to Genesis. Adam and Eve knew God personally, and as a result, they loved and trusted him. And this is what God, exactly what he wants for each one of us today. As we learn the story of the sacrifice God personally made for each one of us, we come face to face with the reality of the infinite love that God has for each and every one of us. When we accept the truth of that love, then we know who God really is, and we are able to believe him and fully put our trust in him. When we believe God, by his grace, our faith and our faith alone, without any works, without any achievements, without any sacrifices of our own, by God's grace, our faith makes us righteous before God. We read this in Romans chapter 4, verses 3 and 5. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Verse 5, but to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. We all have probably memorized Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. For those of us who believe God and have placed our trust in the sacrifice that God himself made on the cross of Calvary, we no longer fear final judgment. We've been set free. Paul tells us of this in Romans 8. Chapter 1 and, or verse 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. As true believers, we now have what Adam and Eve had before they ate the forbidden fruit. Just as Adam and Eve, we now have absolute freedom in our relationship with God that is rooted and grounded knowing him personally and of being forever bound with him with the cords of absolute trust and perfect love. When we think about freedom, we think about being free, set free from something. Those of us who have a loving, eternal relationship with God have been set free from our slavery to sin. But there's another aspect of freedom that is an aspect that's far more important than the fact that we've been set free from slavery and condemnation. We have not just been set free from something, we have been set free to something. We've been set free from ever again having to strive for power or having to strive to live up to any standard in order to be accepted by God or by men. Instead of living lives of never-ending striving the way the world wants us to, we've been set free to just love unconditionally. In Galatians 5.13 we read, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not, let your, do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. I'm reminded of the two verses that we have on, this, on the sides of our, our sanctuary here that we, that we read out loud from time to time together. This is the essence of all of it. Jesus even told his disciples that that's how the world will know us. In John 13, 35, he says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. As people living in a sinful world, we are tempted to be known by our achievements and by how well we adhere to standards. But we need to be constantly aware of these temptations and instead 
focus on the things God has called us to be thinking about. In the Old Testament, we find what is called the law, which is all of the ordinances God gave to the Israelites. But God did not give the law in order to bring the Israelites to a point of perfect obedience. He knew that they were incapable of being perfectly obedient to a set of standards in the form of rules and laws. The purpose of the Old Testament law was to give the Israelites an awareness through things in their physical world of the seriousness of their selfish rebellion against God and of their need for a savior to set them free from their slavery to sin. We read about this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified, not by obedience, but by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We no longer need the law. Please turn now to Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Matthew 22, verse 37. Just like Adam and Eve, we need to understand that God gives us rules, but never as a means to control others or as standards for achievement in order to obtain any kind of acceptance. For Adam and Eve, the commandment not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was given as a warning of a serious danger in their midst. The same principle applies to rules that are given to us throughout the rest of the Bible. God desires only one thing of us, and when we comply, we fulfill all the law. God has made it very clear that one thing, though the only thing that should motivate us as Christians, is unconditional love. Matthew 22, verses 30, 37 through 40, we find Jesus giving us these exact words. And he said unto them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Love never focuses on self. It always focuses on others. In fact, we are even to love our enemies. In Matthew 5:44, Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Luke 6, 27 says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. So the rules we find in the Bible for the believer are not standards we should be trying to live up to. The truth of the matter is, God did not create us to be achievers of standards. He created us to love him and to be perfect reflections of his love. The rules we do find in the Bible that apply to us as Christians are given to us by God for two reasons. First, they stand as warnings of dangers that threaten our ability to love the way we should. And second, they are given as personal tests for us to use to evaluate ourselves to see if we are truly loving the way God desires us to love. Unfortunately, even though we've been set free through trusting in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, too often we allow ourselves to be deceived and we end up giving into temptation. When that happens, we place ourselves back in a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5.1 says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. This is exactly what happens when we allow ourselves, our desires for sensual needs and pleasures, to get in the way of loving others. 
This is what happens when we strive for power or try to achieve standards that have nothing whatsoever to do with living a life of love that God has created us for. The world is constantly tempting us with sensual pleasures and constantly challenging us to strive for power and to be acceptable by living up to artificial standards that no one can ever really achieve. Unfortunately, striving for power and striving to live up to standards even infects the church. In some churches, people are made to feel that they have to dress in a certain way or listen only to certain music in order to be fully accepted as a truly reverent and respectable Christian. In other churches, people are led to believe they must perform certain acts, such as giving 10% or being at church whenever the doors are open or being baptized in order to be accepted as a real Christian. Unfortunately, this list goes on and on and on. But the bottom line is the striving to live up to standards will destroy the freedom to love that's been provided for us by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Scripture clearly tells us the more we are concerned about trying to obey rules and attempting to live up to sets of standards, the less we are able to freely let God's love flow through us into the lives of others. This is because our minds turn away from what we should be thinking about. We become focused on our own desires, our own achievements, instead of the needs of others. On the other hand, when I'm concerned only with recognizing the needs of others and looking to see how I can help fulfill these needs, then my mind isn't able to focus on satisfying my own selfish desires. Each of us that's here this morning has a choice. As a Christian, as a truster in God, as a believer in God, as a lover of God, I have to ask myself every day, and usually all day long, do I want to live free or do I want to be in bondage? I'm constantly tempted with lies about how I can be safe and empowered by achieving certain standards, but I know these are only lies. The truth I find in scripture tells me that when I love others, the way God created me to love, then I am free because I'm perfectly secure in the only place of safety and the only true place of empowerment that exists in all of creation. I know this because God has promised me just as he's promised every other believer, that he makes all things work together for good for me because I trust him and I love him and he loves me. He's also told me that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There is no place of absolute safety, no true position of power other than that which is found in a personal relationship of love and trust with God. For those of you who might be here this morning who do not have a loving personal relationship with God, who have never believed in the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross, the personal sacrifice that he made for you so that you will never have to face eternal condemnation in the final judgment. Those of you who have never placed your trust in the perfect love that God has for you and the gift of eternal life of everlasting joy that he offers to you, you have a different choice to make. You know the truth about the spiritual state you're in, and you've been told the truth about God's perfect love and who he really is. When it comes to spiritual matters, and what eternity will be like for you, you need to ask yourself the most important question you will ever ask. Do I want to live free or die? Heavenly Father, 
We're so thankful for the fact that you have made you the truth of who you are and the incredible love you have for us so evident throughout your word. We thank you, Father, for revealing yourself to us. We thank you for the sacrifice that was made for us on the cross. And Father, we thank you for the, the, the fact that we will be able to spend eternity with you, being made fully righteous and never having to face condemnation or separation from you. When we look at the word that you've given us, the entire Bible, we see this, see this displayed and help, helps us understand in so many different ways. The depth of what this love is all about is just beyond our comprehension. And I'm convinced that for all of eternity, we're going to be continually made more and more aware of the incredible love that you do have for us. And the fact that you have given us the ability to let that love flow through us into the lives of others, to see the changes it can make in the lives of others, to see the fact that we can have personal relationships that mirror who you really are, it just goes beyond imagination. What a joyful thing that is, Lord. We pray this morning, Father, as we've just gone back to the basics, that you will let these truths sink deep into our hearts. We pray, Father, that it'll affect our minds so we aren't led astray, so we aren't tempted by things that lead us away from you, that keep us from living lives of unconditional love. We pray, Father, that if there's anyone here this morning who's never taken a serious look at who you are and the love you have for them, this will be a day when they will be able to do that and they may enter into a permanent, eternal, loving relationship with you. All this, Father, we ask and we pray for in Jesus' name. Amen.